You're now standing in front of 18 Greek Street, which, for several years, was the meeting place of the General Council of the International Workingmen's Association, sometimes called the First International, to distinguish it from later organizations. The International was founded in 1864, largely at the behest of leading members of the British trade union movement, which had been growing rapidly since about 1850. These unionists had become keenly interested in international affairs during the early 1860s, and they supported Italian unification in 1859-61, the uprising in Poland against Russian rule in 1863, and the North in the American Civil War of 1861-1865. In contact with workers in other European countries, they proposed a permanent organization to foster international solidarity. Marx was invited to the organization as a representative of Germany, and, excited by an organization that promised to link up workers across the continent, and which was founded at the impetus of the strongest organized labor movement in the world, the British, he became a member of the governing general council. He attended the vast majority of its weekly meetings, which occurred here on Tuesday evenings. Although by this point he had lived in England for 15 years, This represented the most sustained contact Marx had yet had with the British working class. Gareth Stedman-Jones supplies one reason for this seeming paradox. I mean, he could read English, but he couldn't write it. He had to learn how to write it. As far as speaking it was concerned, my sense is it's still a very thick, guttural accent and people could just about make out what he was saying. It meant he couldn't in no sense be an orator or a political activist in any normal sense in England, unlike some of the other emigres who do go into politics and make some impact in the British local scene. Yeah, there were a few early exceptions to this cultural isolation from the English, as Rosemary Ashton says. Marx did get in touch with some of the more progressive and radical English agitators, particularly the leading chartists Ernest Jones and George Julian Harney. Unfortunately, though, ironically really, by 1848, just when Europe was erupting, the chartist movement in Britain was in decline. For example, there was the famous 10th of April 1848 meeting of chartists and rebels, which the government feared would lead to revolution, particularly in the aftermath of the February 1848 uprisings in Paris and other cities. But it was all a damp squib, partly thanks to the rain that fell all day, but also, I suppose, because feelings in Britain were not quite so inflamed generally, there being a greater measure of civil freedom than there was in these other countries. But the Chartists had their six points of the Charter, which they wanted to put through, parliamentary reform in particular, and both Jones, Ernest Jones, who was a lawyer, and George Julian Harney edited their separate Chartist newspapers, for which Marx and Engels and others of the German exiles wrote articles. But like all revolutionary left-wing newspapers, they didn't make any money, they had a small circulation, and Jones and Harney couldn't afford to pay Marx, so there was a kind of fizzling out of that too. And as ever, Marx was scored 
saw and thought of what he thought was a kind of British-English empiricism, which he admired, the practical wisdom of England and its entrepreneurial aspects of the Industrial Revolution and the Technical Revolution, but he despised the lack of a kind of philosophical underpinning in British thinking. So he soon fell out with Jones and Harney, although he did, interestingly enough, use Jones in particular to help him with some social, local domestic social problems he had. For example, when his second oldest daughter, Laura, got engaged to a French revolutionary, Lafargue, Paul Lafargue, Marx wanted to be able, or rather I think his wife probably, wanted to be able to tell her English neighbours why Laura and Paul were going to get married in a register office and not in a church and this was a problem and Jones neatly answered it by saying well you'll have to tell your neighbours that because Paul being French is a Catholic and Laura is a Protestant they have to marry in a registry office and so that was the solution that was found so this kind of social coming together to some extent but basically Marx couldn't see that the English socialists were moving in the right direction and in this respect he under estimated the burgeoning trade union movement, which was really the the outfit that was going to bring forward progress and change in Britain, particularly with the founding of the Independent Labour Party in 1893. By the middle of the 1860s, all of this had changed. Here's David McClellan on the importance of the international to Marx, and of Marx to the international. The International was founded in 1864, and Marx, being prominent among the German refugee community, was asked to be part of the founding board of this, and wrote the preliminary statement for this, and was elected as general secretary and that kind of thing. So he was a very prominent member of the International from 1864 until it finally moved to America and faded away in the early 70s. He was very keen on the international, partly because Marx was always a very international thinker about working class movements and wanted to promote international working men's solidarity, which was the point of the international, really, to try and make sure that foreign black-led labour didn't undermine strikes in particular countries. That was one of their main things. So Marx drafted statements for the international, was very active in it, attended all their conferences wrote one of his most famous works, Civil War in France, for the international after the failure of the, you know, the bloody suppression of the Commune in Paris in 1871. And after having been inactive, really, from the revolutions of 1848-9 and retired to London, really, and not been active in the international marked his re-emergence into left-wing politics in Britain and his also gaining a certain notoriety because although nobody in the 1850s or early 1860s in London would ever have heard of Marx, unless they'd been part of the German refugee community, by the time that the Paris Commune was over, Marx was quite a well-known person in London, as quotes the Red Terror Doctor, that kind of thing. He even, when he died in 83, got an obituary in the Times. It was a small obituary and not very accurate, but nevertheless... And it was due to his prominence in the international and the international's influence on European politics that he gained this notoriety. 
The International was an important forum for reformist, radical, and labor movements in Europe. Its annual congresses, usually held in Switzerland or in the Low Countries, involved intense political debates and attempts to work out common platforms across the association's constituent branches. It was also engaged in more practical efforts, such as organizing relief for striking workers. At its height, it had around 50,000 members in Britain, mostly affiliated through their trade unions, and perhaps 150,000 across Europe and the Americas. It also occasioned some of Marx's most important writing. In 1871, Marx produced the International's official response to the destruction by the French government of the Paris Commune, an autonomous and democratic government set up in that city in the aftermath of the Franco-Prussian War. Entitled The Civil War in France, this pamphlet, as Professor McClellan has said, launched Marx into the public eye. Many contemporaries objected to Marx's vituperative descriptions of leading French politicians, but it remained relevant to readers long after the events of 1871, in part because Marx characterized the Commune as a glimpse of what a workers' government in the future might look like. The International, however, ultimately fell apart. It contained a wide range of political opinions from the beginning, including the radical but reformist liberalism of many British trade unionists and the democratic nationalism of the followers of Giuseppe Mazzini. It also counted amongst its members the charismatic Russian anarchist Mikhail Bakunin. The clash between Marx and Bakunin, in particular within the international, but also more generally in the realm of ideas, is well known. It was because of Bakunin's growing influence within the international and fear that his supporters would ultimately gain control of the organization that led Marx to destroy the International by moving its headquarters to New York in 1872. There, as Marx intended, the International received less attention and fewer adherents than it did in Europe, and it ultimately folded in 1876. We're now going to leave Soho and head to the British Museum in nearby Bloomsbury. To get there, head back up Greek Street in the opposite direction from which you came cross over Soho Square, and turn right onto Oxford Street. Follow this down to Coptic Street and turn left. Coptic Street will shortly tee into Great Russell Street, where you should turn right. The British Museum's entrance will be on the left-hand side of the street. As you walk, listen to the next track, where you'll hear more about the Marx family's move out of Soho.